Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So imagine you're an actor, like David Oyelowo, and you're doing a movie with one of the biggest action superstars ever, Tom Cruise. Like every action movie, there's a bunch of explosions and stunts and car chases, and of course, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. So when his character is in a car chase with your character, I mean, it's Tom Cruise. Stuff gets real. And um, there was a a moment where on a slick street, he had to uh, come to a screeching halt next to my car. We were meant to be parallel to each other, give each other a death stare before he zooms off. And I kid you not, Tom crashed into my car three times. And the director called cut after the third one and came up to me and said, yeah, we're going to move on because I just caught a flash of your wife in widow weeds. Oh, how did your husband die? Uh, Tom Cruise killed him. It's Bullseye. My guest this week, David Oyelowo. David is an incredibly versatile actor. He got his start at the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. He has smaller parts on British television and in movies like The Help and Jack Reacher. His latest movie is Don't Let Go, which was just released. It's like a Twilight Zone take on detective movies. David's character travels across time to prevent the murder of his niece. But his breakout performance was in 2014. He took on what might have been one of the toughest roles ever. He played Martin Luther King in Selma. As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, for it is determined for me by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. When we talked last year, David had just starred in a movie that, and I think I am being pretty fair saying this, could not be more different than an Academy Award-nominated biopic like Selma. It's an action comedy called Gringo. David stars as a middle manager at a big pharmaceutical company in Chicago. The company has decided to get in on the medical marijuana business in a big way by manufacturing a weed pill. So they send David's character to Mexico to deliver the formula. I don't think I'm spoiling much here when I tell you that things do not go as planned for him. Before long, he's swept into Mexico's criminal underground. He gets kidnapped. He gets shot at. He gets in a car chase with a cartel hitman. Oyelowo's character, for his part, is barely aware of what's going on and spends pretty much the whole time freaking out. It's goofy and a little dumb and very funny. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the beginning of the movie. In this scene, he's in Mexico and he's on the phone with his bosses, played by Shirlize Theron and Joel Edgerton. He told them he's been kidnapped by a cartel and his captors want $5 million to set him free. And his bosses are wondering if they could maybe come down on the price a little. I just told you they're going to kill me. Yes! Bargaining. I'm in business. That's what I do. You walk through warehouses, put little check marks on boxes. That's what you do. Don't be mean. What's that about the policy? You know what to Harold, I'm just going to spit this out. There is no policy. What? We had to make cutbacks. Uh, there was a lot going out. We didn't have a lot coming in. I had to let the policy lapse. You kept sending me down here with no insurance! Yeah, well, just for a little while. Why didn't you tell me? What a f***ing cry, baby. There's not enough time in every day for us to tell you all the things we do not want 
David Royello, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. That's him actually burning himself <laughs> on the wrist with a cigarette rather than just pretending to. That's right. He gets like caught up in the moment, I guess. He's, this is an intense dude in an, in an intense situation. A long series of intense situations. Yes. yes. Have you done like a – I mean there are – a fair number of like straight up action scenes in this. There's no like jumping and shooting guns sideways, but right. had you done that before? Um, I've done a bit of it before. I did a, a, a spy show that was called Spooks in the UK. It was called MI5 here, and we did a fair bit of uh, shooting guns uh, while diving sideways in that. But the thing I love about Gringo is that the the action has real jeopardy to it. You know, there's no my character certainly. There's nothing cool about the way he uh, handles himself in these very precarious situations. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of fun imagining imagining what it would actually be like to be being tossed around in a car the way I do severally in the film. We, our office is on a street where that is often shut down for filming, you know? Right. And because it's a street that's often shut down for filming, a lot of times they're doing car stuff on the street. Right. And when they're doing stuff with cars and things that go bang, yeah. I never believe like no amount of watching it and thinking that like there's an assistant director and a stunt coordinator and a props manager all of whom have done this 75 times none of that convinces me that those people are safe there are real elements of danger i mean you do everything you can to ensure that it's safe but one of the uh one of the unforgettable experiences i had doing some action stuff that involved cars was a film i did called jack reacher with tom cruise who as the world knows insists on doing his own stunts which means when you're in a car chase with him you've got to be in that car as well and um, there was a, a moment where on a slick street he had to uh, come to a screeching halt next to my car we were meant to be parallel to each other give each other a death stare before he zooms off and I kid you not Tom crashed into my car three times and the director called cut after the third one and came up to me and said yeah we're gonna move on because I just caught a flash of your wife in widow weeds (laughs) I thought okay that is an image I do not want in your head let alone in reality let's call it a day so I want to ask you a little bit about your life You were born in the UK to uh, parents who had uh, emigrated from Nigeria, immigrated to the UK. Does that sound? Does that seem like you're right? right. I think you're on the right track. Uh, And uh, you lived there until you were a young kid, then left and went with your parents back to Nigeria. Yeah. What led your parents to the UK in the first place? Um, Education. My dad really uh, well. Nigerians generally, certainly of my dad's generation, educationally, you, the UK was the place you go. A bit like in America, it's it's Yale or Harvard. You know, for Nigerians, you wanted to go to the UK. You wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And, and so, even here in the United States, I think Nigerians are like maybe the. I think it may literally be the most highly educated immigrant group. In the United States, yeah. certainly among them. That is correct. And, and, and yeah, it's academia is 
the zenith. It's the height of achievement and it's bragging rights for days uh, in, a, in any given family. So that was one of the things. But also my dad was from a royal family in Nigeria. My mom was a commoner and um, their marriage was about to be frowned upon by his family. And so they effectively eloped to the UK. You said your dad was from a royal family practically. What did that mean in his and your life? Um, practically speaking, it was uh, basically bragging rights because I grew up in the UK, where, of course, we have a very discernible notion of what the royal family are, whereas in Nigeria, it's a little bit like being the king of Sherman Oaks. It's not <laughs> its not really as um, impressive as it may sound, but, you know, it's, 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 still, it's still decent. What? Uh, how long were you in the UK the first time around? Um, so I was born in Oxford, uh, and then up until the age of two, uh, we were there, and then we moved to London, and then we moved to Nigeria when I was six, and we lived in Lagos, Nigeria, till I was thirteen. Was there a reason that you knew as a six-year-old that you were? moving to a different continent? Yeah, I, I, it was something that my parents shielded me from, but uh, the UK was, London in particular, was a tough place for a a black family uh, to, to make headway in the early 80s. Uh, my dad had terrible things like coffee thrown in his face and he would be spat at when he'd go for job interviews. It was, you know, it was bad. And um, I guess he thought, what am I doing? You know, I, I, I come from a well-to-do family in Nigeria. I'm raising these children here. We could have a better life in Nigeria. So that was part of the impetus for moving. But very quickly after we moved, well, a, a, about six, seven years after we moved, a, a, a military government came in, which was highly corrupt. And uh, so we were, we were packing our bags again. I think a lot of folks imagine that the desire to be an actor is driven by the desire to basically to perform. Hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that's great. That can Mm -hmm. be really cool. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like a, a lot of folks who are actors also have had experiences that force them outside of themselves personally Mm. and socially Mm. um, that make them see themselves as enacting their Mm -hmm. sense of self in real life. Right. And I would imagine that having had these two big dislocating experiences Mm. of moving from the UK to Nigeria, then moving from Nigeria back to the UK Mm. must have led you to just have some understanding of like what it is to be performing socially you know what i mean like to make a place for yourself with others as a choice rather than as a uh you know a passive or whatever thing yeah i mean what it gave me is at a very young age i had seen a lot of humanity i had lived in London, I had lived in Lagos, two very different cities, vibrant cities, full of color in every possible sense of that word, and uh, full of syndromes and situations and difficult situations and positive situations that really go to the heart of who we are as human beings. And so when I chose to be an actor, I really had experienced way more than actually a, a lot of kids, my my teenage kids my age, uh, would have experienced certainly in London at that time. And so 
you know, when you're watching Shakespeare for the first time or Greek tragedy for the first time, that's the amazing thing about growing up in the UK is the the extraordinary theatre you're exposed to right on your doorstep. And I was able to watch these amazing productions uh, with incredible actors and it just spoke to me. And so for me, you know, being an actor at that stage was was more about feeling like I had something to express through storytelling and I had something to offer. You know, I always saw it as an act of service to in some way um, evoke humanity and present it to us as human beings. Doing theater training, especially classical theater training, Mm -hmm. involves a lot of refining your relationship to your own voice. Mm. Did you feel like you had a different relationship to your own voice than uh, the other folks in acting school or whatever because you were such an experienced uh, code switcher, to use some Mm. jargon, because you were a three-time immigrant? Mm. Um, Oh, boy. Really, really good question. Um, Yes. I mean... uh, Code switching is actually something that has been a theme in my acting life. It's been something that has been in a lot of the roles I've gravitated towards, probably as you've just now revealed to me, because it is a part of of, of who I have been. You know, even being at drama school, I grew up in a, in a very working class environment, in a tiny little apartment with my parents and three brothers. But I went to a, a drama school where, you know, Shakespeare and, and all, all these kind of plays, certainly the way we were taught, you diction was key. And so um, a lot of people who had regional accents had to ditch them in order to be able to... This language that is five times the vocabulary that we use to get your gums around it, you really needed to be as clear as possible. And so, yeah, there was a degree of code switching there whereby my brothers, for instance, have a very different accent to mine. They have very London accents. And I think between drama school and the RSC for three years, you know, my accent is now plummy, shall we say, or posh or whatever. And so, but I can in a trice be in North London and be completely chameleonic and dive into that world in a way that is imperceptible. So that has been something that for me has played real, real dividends. You know, even in Gringo, the character I play in that as a Nigerian immigrant, that's a byproduct of, you know, those are my uncles, that's my dad, those are my cousins, those are people who I know but are very much not my, uh, the way I walk into life every given day, but I know who those people are inside out. I uh, want to play a clip from a television show, and I'm just going to apologize to the audience for being a corny public radio dude for loving this television show so much. (laughs) Um, But I really love this television show. It was called the Number One Ladies Detective Agency. (laughs) This was a show that starred uh, Jill Scott as uh, Botswanan, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Um, Sort of independent detective lady. Yes. Um, and you were in the pilot of the show and, you know, you've been well known for playing some very understated characters or characters who at least in their private lives are understated. Yes. And this is quite the <laughs> opposite of that. Are you, are you doing a, a Botswana accent in this yes, scene? Yes, I am. I am. So, uh, in this case, uh, on the show, Jill Scott is trying to figure out, 
she's she's been approached by a wife who thinks her husband's having an affair. Um, she goes to a bar. She's snooping around, right. and your character, whose name is Kremlin Busong, yes, <laughs> and you are, you know, you're like. Oh, you're, he's the man. You're grooving man. on Gyrating. Him. Yes. Pumping the air perpetually yeah. is what that character did. Let's listen. Do you have a wife, Ra? Because I'm not leaving a bar with a man who is a married man. I love a woman with values. All my life I've been saving myself for such a woman. Beautiful lady. I am as single as Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my goodness. It actually sounds really bad when it's just a recording. <laughs> because you can't tell how crazy this dude is. Oh, I had fun doing that. I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to play many sort of outlandish, big, garish characters. Like that. That was one of the uh, the only times I've been able to do it on film. More with David Oyelowo when we come back from a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate. Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water. That's pretty smart. Starting college can be overwhelming. Everyone from almost every background has that fear that they got in here by accident. That's scary. NPR's Life Kit is here to help make your freshman year a little easier. Listen to NPR Life Kit's new guide on college. Or subscribe to Life Kit All Guides for all the episodes all in one place. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow. The cover. We've got a new champion. We're here with macho man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power, too sweet to be sour, funky like a monkey, woke discussions, man, and jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices, myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah. Dig it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Oyelowo, award-winning actor. His newest movie, Don't Let Go, is in theaters now. When you moved to the United States, why did you move to the United States? Because all my heroes, when it came to acting, were doing what they were doing here. Um, I had people who I admired in the UK in terms of black actors, but they just weren't being afforded the opportunities that signified the zenith of what I think it is to be an actor. Um, and so it was Denzel Washington. It was Sidney Poitier. It was Will Smith. And... Um, I had been given some really great opportunities in the UK, but it became evident that I was about to start 
hitting this glass ceiling pretty hard and probably perpetually. And so, you know, my wife and I and our two kids at the time, we've since had another two here in the States, decided, you know, it's now or never. If our kids get much older, it's going to be harder to extricate ourselves. And so we bet on ourselves, packed our bags and uh, made our way over. When you moved to the United States, and already had two kids, were you thinking about what your kids' experience would be like as African-Americans? Yeah, big time, of course. And um, it was a real cause for pause, as it were, because um, race relations in the UK have all the complexity and all the challenges that we have here. There are just nuanced differences. So my kids who are mixed race would not be uh, deemed black in the UK. They are mixed race. They are as much white as they are black. Whereas here you are you are African American, you are black, you are, you know, and so there are all sorts of identity issues that my wife and I had to think about, not because being deemed black or being deemed mixed race is better than the other, just it's like I had when I was younger, it's gonna be something to navigate. Navigate the fact that perceptions of who or what you are differ depending on the country you have been brought up in thus far to the country we are now emigrating to. So that was something that we had to um, just think about. But the thing that we couldn't have anticipated is in the wake of all these um, terrible examples of police brutality, having to talk to our children about how to conduct themselves around the police in a way to make sure that they don't get, A, get in trouble, B, get shot. I mean, th- those are things that um, have been very challenging to have to realize one has to talk to your kids about when you know you have lovely children who just cannot imagine a world in which they would be getting in trouble with the police. But, you know, there is just a disproportionate amount of challenge towards young black youth in this country that means that you just got to acknowledge it in raising your kids. You've played a lot of African-American characters and worked with a lot of African-American artists. Mm. Um, When you're hanging out on the set, do you compare notes about <laughs> the experiences of your of, of your cultural groups, um, less on set and more in just in terms of my personal relationships with people. You know, over dinner, over you, you know. I mean, I've lived here long enough now that I feel uh, subsumed into the culture in a very real way. I've also had this crazy journey of having to learn a lot of not just. American history, but African-American history. You know, if you do films like Red Tails about the Tuskegee Airmen or The Butler, you know, where my father in the film goes through five, six, seven presidents um, as a butler, or playing Martin Luther King, or, um, um, you know, The Help, or, or Lincoln. You know, these are, you know, I worked out the other day that I've literally had to study 150 years of um, Af- African-American history, you know, from Lincoln and the uh, uh, the 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 proclamation in in 
1865 all the way through to playing Dr. King in 1965 all the way through to, you know, in the butler we show President Obama becoming president in 2008. And I take research for these projects very, very seriously. So I really dive into the history. And so even to become an American, which I now am an American citizen, you have to study what it is that America is by way of its history. So I probably know more of American history and culture than I even do Nigerian now because of of, of those filmic experiences and, and, and what my children are now going through being raised as Americans effectively. So yeah, you know, it's it's something I I, I love um, about this country, its its history, and I, and I really deem a lot of my African American friends as you know brothers and sisters to me in a very real sense. Was there ever a time that you felt uh, of two minds about playing African American characters? Uh, only in the same way that you are in two minds about facing any challenge um, as an actor. It's the same thing if you're going to play Othello, if you're going to play Henry VI. I never really had what maybe I think is what you're referring to of should I as a Brit of Nigerian parentage, should I play someone like Dr. Martin Luther King? I've always felt that um, the miracle of what acting affords any actor is not playing yourself, going as far away from yourself as possible, because that's where you find humanity is not a projection of your own humanity, but a universal humanity. Um, So, you know, I'm all for Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher, as long as she does it well. And, you know, I I would hope that any role I contemplate will be judged more on the basis of how I execute it rather than necessarily where I'm actually from. I feel like when I was in acting school and they were trying to convince me to connect to my own emotional experience so Mm. that I could produce an analog on stage as an actor, even that even not the second step, the first step. Right. I was like, well, hold on. <laughs> I have spent the last 17 years since I gained self-awareness avoiding engaging with my own actual emotional state. And you want me to do it on purpose? <laughs> yeah. Look, I think... There are different techniques. Everyone is different. Everyone accesses emotion differently. I personally am not of that school. I'm not of that person, of, of that school of thinking whereby dredge up all the pain and hurt and all of that. That you Because, look, my pain is different from my character's pain. For me, go to the character empathize as much as you can with the circumstances under which this character finds themselves and trust that your compassion as a human being, as an actor, will enable you to access some of what they must be going through. That, for me, is what I do. And that's also the way to not give samey performances because if every time I'm doing an emotional scene, I think of when my cat died when I was seven, I I have to believe that it's 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 not going to be the right emotion to have for both the serial killer and the civil rights leader. You know, I've got to find my way into that human being. And that that 
But that's not to say it's not effective for other people. I personally don't subscribe to that that school of thought. Do you ever take your work home? There's this thing that you're supposed to <laughs> wipe your emotional feet at the door yeah. on the way in and out of acting, right? It depends on the role. It depends <laughs> on the role. I, I, I couldn't do that with Dr. King. I stayed in character for three months, and it was necessitous for that role. I couldn't... You know what? I, I had the privilege of doing a scene with Daniel Day-Lewis, who's my favorite actor of all time, in Lincoln. And I saw palpably in front of me the commitment that he had engaged in to play that role. And it gave me the template that I needed to, to, to play Dr. King. And I realized there were just some roles that are going to cost a bit more than others. Um, that was one. A film I did called Nightingale was another, where you had someone with a dissociative identity disorder and he, who had seven different characters, you know, twirling around in his head at any given time. I chose to move, even though we shot that in L.A., I chose to move out of my home. I didn't want that near my kids. And I stayed in the character the whole time because there's something about someone who has seven different permutations of themselves swirling around their head that there's going to be a manifestation that that has when that is perpetually the case day in, day out. And what it meant for me in that situation is that I never second-guessed any choices I was making as an actor while I was portraying that guy. Whereas if I'm suddenly David and then I'm the guy who has seven different, you know, people going around his head. I just don't know how to tell the truth of that. And so, but that wasn't required on Jack Reacher when, when Tom was crashing into me three times. I was very, very much able to snap into David very quickly uh, under those circumstances. So I think, you know, different roles require different things. I mean, if you want to go full Daniel Day-Lewis... I got a buddy here in L.A. who knows how to make shoes. <laughs> if you need to. You know what? He's my hero. I may just go see your buddy just so that I can feel hemispherically that I touched the hem of Daniel's garment. Daniel Ayelowo, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for... You don't know how much that yeah. means to me that you called uh, me Daniel. <laughs> David Ayelowo, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. David Oyelowo. You can see his new movie, Don't Let Go, which was just released, and you can stream Gringo on Amazon Prime. It's a very fun movie. And um, if you haven't seen uh, Number One Ladies Detective Agency, uh, one of my favorite gone-too-soon television series of all time, uh, it's on HBO, and you can watch it there. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our office was cleaved in two. Okay, I hope to use the rock right form of cleaved. Do not write letters. We are now overlooking MacArthur Park from two different directions. It just got too crowded in here. Very exciting. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away from the office. Raghu Manavalan is filling in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally. 
known as DJW. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. He's shared some of the music that he's made for the show on Bandcamp. Uh, you can search for DJW there. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Uh, go get their records. They're great. We've got almost two decades of past Bullseye interviews available for you to listen to for free. You can find them all at our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find uh, the last few years' worth on our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Um, if you're an indie rock person, I had a fun conversation with Craig Finn one time from The Hold Steady. They've got a new record that I've heard good things about. Uh, we have a beautiful interview with uh, Nico Case where we talk about wildlife a lot. That's my memory of it anyway. Uh, listen, find out if it's right. You can also subscribe to Bullseye in your favorite podcast app. Again, it's free, so why not do that? We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Bullseye on Twitter, and Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.